0: Hi, this is Andrew and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it's Monday, October the 17th, 2022. What's happened to the American dream? What's happened to dreaming? We've done many shows on both dreaming and the American dream uh someone told us that the american dream has always been open to interpretation that's not exactly news um many pessimists of course who believe that the american dream has gone away including a guest i had a couple of years ago jessica Bruder, of course the author of Nomad Land, uh, a book that eventually got turned into a movie that won an oscar uh lots of stuff on the american dream and new kinds of Immigrants, female immigrants, non-white immigrants, Erica Sanchez crying in the bathroom. We had a good show with her. But some people, I think, disagree. Some people still believe in the American dream. Michael Saman was a son of a Peruvian uh, immigrant couple, actually one from Peru and I think one from Ecuador. Uh, He started working at 11 when they lived in Florida and paid for his parents' rent. He's become one of the most influential Uh, tech guys in Silicon Valley. Uh, He has a new book out, App Kid, and he's one of uh, Florida and Miami's most famous people still speaking for the American Dream. My guest today is another spokesman, I think, in an odd way for the American Dream, Uh, Richard Keller, otherwise known as Rick without a K, as a longtime congressman, a Republican from Florida, uh, from Orlando, and now he's in the business of writing books. He has a new book out, Chase the Bears, Little Things to Achieve Big Dreams. And Rick is joining us from Orlando, Florida. Rick, you still believe, is this just dreams or the American dream, or are they the same thing?
1: I think it's universal dreams. I think you don't have to be in America. I I think the hitch is... I don't believe it when people say, you know, you can you can be anything you want to be. Well, I can't dunk a basketball or, or win a gold medal in the hundred meter dash. I think you can be anything you want to be if you use your gifts and stay in your lane.
0: But Rick, when you were growing up in Johnson City, Tennessee, if someone had said to you, you're going to end up a, as a congressman, you're going to end up rubbing shoulders with with presidents and making very popular TEDx speeches people would say you're crazy you might have thought you were crazy yourself you might not be able to dunk a basketball but we need to dream dream big don't we
1: we do if you would have asked me growing up what i was going to be i would say probably a, a pro football player or a pro, pro baseball player and and life didn't turn out that way and then later i thought i was going to be a doctor and uh Didn't find out to my senior year of college when I volunteered in the hospital that I hated it, hated everything about it, the the sight of blood and the the cranky patients and everything. And ultimately, I decided, you know, the thing that comes easy for me is, is doing public speaking and explaining things in a simple way. And because I grew up poor, I had this passion of helping poor kids go to college. And so for me, the answer ended up being politics and using my gifts that way.
0: Tell me a little bit about your childhood. You said you grew up poor in Johnson City. I'm sure there are many Johnson Cities, this one in Tennessee. What was unique about Johnson City, Tennessee?
1: It's a pretty cool little town. I was actually born in Johnson City. My parents uh, both went to East Tennessee State University, but they split uh, before I was a year old. And so my dad went back to New York and I came to Orlando and I actually grew up in Orlando and pretty humble circumstances. We lived in a a one bedroom home uh, with my brother and sister and grandmother, my mom, and I didn't even meet my dad until I was 14, and when I met him for the first time, it was sort of like a stranger. He handed me this paperback book that was called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, and I read it six times, and after about three years, I was finally ready to call him dad and finally ready to try the secret formula in this book and and have an experiment, and so I set a goal of graduating first in my class in college, and at the time, I set the goal. I was a pretty mediocre student in high school, B.C., and that happened. And then I set a goal of, of getting elected to Congress, and that happened. And so once I got older, like right now, I'm 58, I really don't have the desire to win the trophies for myself. What really motivates me is helping other people win the trophies. And so I felt like if I can write a book that will help people just like that book helped me, it would give me a hell of a lot of satisfaction and I think make a lot of people's lives better. So that's how I ended up writing this book.
0: Rick, um, as I said, you were a Republican, uh, a Republican congressman for I think eight years. Um, you, this book is about achieving big dreams. Do you think Republicans and Democrats dream differently, or do we all pretty much dream the same? I think
1: people uh, don't realize that uh, we have a lot more in common than we do difference, and people get along in Washington a lot better than you would you would think. In my particular case, for example, even though I was Republican, I spent all years focusing on what most people would think is a Democrat issue, which is increasing Pell Grants, college aid to help people go to college. And one of the things that I learned from being a member of my party is that the person who is your opponent today may be your best friend tomorrow. So, for example, if I had a bill to lower taxes and a Democrat across the colleague voted no on it, I don't let it piss me off because next week when we go to increase Pell Grants, he's going to be my champion. And so I think what's missing in Washington a little bit uh, more than when I was there is there's been an erosion of civility. And that's what causes me the most concern. It really isn't if you're a Republican, isn't if you're a Democrat. I just want people to listen to each other with with an open mind. And you don't have to agree on everything or anything. Just act respectfully in response. That's. That's what I'd like to see happen.
0: As you said, you grew up uh, in a single family, a single parent family, poor in, in Orlando. You were born in Johnson City, Tennessee. Uh, I'm not suggesting you're part of the underclass, but you certainly weren't part of the ruling class, Rick. Um, one might have guessed that you would have joined the Democratic Party, the, the, the party, uh, at least according to them, of the common man. What What intrigued you about the Republicans? How did you dream Republican rather than Democrat.
1: I like the idea of low taxes and creating jobs and a strong military. I don't necessarily think that that either party has a, a monopoly on good ideas. And so I don't have a problem with championing a Democrat issue if I think it's right. I also don't have a problem if when a Democrat does something great saying that. So just to give you a simple example, when... Obama made the decision to have SEAL Team 6 go in and try to capture Bin Laden. Uh, it, was a, it was a gutsy decision. A lot of people told him not to do it. And when he did it, I thought it was spectacular. And what they did was spectacular. Yet I would turn on some of the TV channels and they'd be criticizing him, saying, oh, this should have happened a long time ago. And thank God for such and such president. We got it done. And I'm like. My God, man! This this is something. If anything should bring us together, you you can't say a nice thing about that. It it defies common sense. And so, if I know exactly what you're gonna say on every single issue, that means you're not thinking. And and the same thing with me too. I I I do have a set core of beliefs, but I'm I'm willing to to listen with an open mind and change. And I'm not married to my own opinions. If I hear something better,
0: Rick, we did a show earlier today with Gautam Mukunda, a political writer political scientist, picking presidents how to make the most consequential decision in the world and he was a big admirer even though he's a progressive of of Reagan I know you're a big fan of Reagan too I'm guessing sure you would probably describe yourself as a Reagan Republican do you think the genius of Reagan was to articulate the ability to to dream particularly big dreams
1: I think that the genius of Reagan is he didn't go up there with with an agenda of let me do 55 things. He wanted lower taxes. He wanted a strong military and he wanted to end the Cold War. And he was able to take his affable personality and get people behind those things. And so when he runs for reelection, he got 49 out of 50 states, the biggest landslide in history. And yet it almost didn't happen because he really didn't do well in his first debate against Mondale. And he's going in the second debate and people are saying, and maybe you're too old to do this job. And he used self-deprecating humor. He said, you know, look, I'm not going to make age an issue in this campaign. I'm not going to uh, exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience." And it was game changing. And even his opponent laughed and he went on to win. And that's kind of a, a, a metaphor of the of the the charm of Reagan. He was he was able to be likable and champion a few things. Well,
0: the last Republican president, I can't remember his name. You probably can Um, (laughs) seems to have forgotten how to dream. Are you personally nostalgic for Republican Party that remembered how to dream that Reagan focus, sharp focus, as you suggested? On one or two large dreams? You know, I, I like
1: when people appeal to our better angels and when they focus on trying to do the right thing for the greater good, irrespective of whether it's Republican or Democrat. And I'll, I'll give you one example. One of the highlights in my life was going to the Oval Office for a signing ceremony for my bill. And, and there was President George W. Bush and Ted Kennedy. And what surprised me is the way they interacted behind the scenes was very courteous and professional. So, for example, President Bush says to me, Rick, this desk here is the same desk that uh, JFK used. And this spot here is the same spot that little John Jr. had that famous photograph taken. So we're now going to reenact that scene by having Ted crawl under the desk. And they both erupted (laughs) laughing. And when you look at it, you know they've. Been I, hope very... he, I
0: hope he crawled. Did you get yeah. Ted? <laughs> Ted, was, Ted was a well-nourished man. You know, I'd say 6 we're two. We're doing two, a show actually. There's a new book out by John Farrell on on, on uh, Ted Kennedy that we're doing a show on that in a couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, what I like is those guys are very different in a lot of ways, but yet they did have things in common that they needed each other on things like education reform, and immigration and so they they maintained a level of civility that I think is really important and so whether your dream of the world is more like a Ted Kennedy vision or whether your dream is, is more like a George W. Bush vision. I, I think the key thing is, is to articulate
0: your dream in a way that's civil and that's respectful of other people. You did a very popular TEDx speech um, this year, The Power of Self-Deprecating Humor. I enjoyed it very much. Um, what's the relationship, Rick, in your mind between self-deprecating humor and dreaming? If you are you able to dream more if you take yourself less or more seriously?
1: I think that's such a wonderful question. I I can tell you that with respect to self-deprecating humor, it's made a, a lot of dreams come true because it's able to lift people up into a position where they can make a difference. And so I think Lincoln and Reagan and JFK and Obama uh, all got their jobs in part because they had a, a wonderful sense of, of humor. I know that I got my job almost solely because of a sense of humor. It was one moment in my life that was life-changing, and it was just an opening line to a, a group of CEOs that, that made them laugh, and it, it was responsible for, for really making me an underdog who, who won the election. But I like the idea of people not taking themselves too seriously. I like the idea, especially of very high level people, whether it's a CEO or or a governor or president, being able to poke fun of themselves to kind of minimize the status differences um, between folks.
0: What about we talked you talked about self-deprecating humor and dreaming? What about crying and dreaming? Um, we did a show last year with one of your I'm not sure if you were in Congress at the same time as him, Ruben. Gallego, a um, uh, congressman from, uh, from I was going to say Iraq, from Arizona. He fought in the Ariz- in the Iraq War, and he has a new book out, They Called Us Luck. It was a very, very sad show. In fact, he cried on it. You were in Congress during those times, post-9-11, the catastrophic, ultimately, I think, invasion of Iraq. What, what about this relationship, Rick, between crying and dreaming um i mean we all would like to laugh all the time we all wish that the news was always good but of course it isn't
1: well that's funny i have a story in my book about that in terms of um john boehner I, i've never met a leader that uh cried more than john he was he was very much in uh, touch with his emotions and he was confident enough to, to be able to, to express himself authentically, including crying. So, for example, there was a big leadership race. I was the only one in Florida that backed John, and, and John was an underdog. He ended up winning. And so when he addressed our conference for the first time behind closed doors, uh, he was speaking what it meant to him and and started crying, you know, and it, it reminded me of that old song, you know, it, it's my party and I'll cry if you want to. If crying is your authentic emotion at the time, I don't have a problem with it. I, I think it's going to have people connect with you. If if laughter is your authentic emotion at the time, I think go with that. I think people don't expect you to be perfect. I think they expect you to be authentic.
0: Do you are you a crier?
1: You know, some things make me uh, cry. Uh, there was a there's a story about how I got to. Uh, uh, go to college in the first place about how someone really helped me out, an 81-year-old guy. And I've told that story 20 times, and I, I've never been able to get through it uh, without having tears because it, uh, it brings me back to that, that moment when, when someone made a difference and cared.
0: Rick, you've mentioned education several times already in this conversation. You said you went to Congress to work on Pell Grants. Uh, You yourself, uh, as you suggest, uh, were lucky enough, you ended up at Vanderbilt, You ended up, I think, top of your class and got you into Congress. There's a great debate in this country about education. The current governor of uh, Florida, Ron DeSantis, and uh, his Florida Republicans are reshaping higher education. Many people believe that it's not to the benefit of, of poorer kids, kids like yourself born on the wrong side of the tracks. What's your take on DeSantis's education reforms? And what would you like to see to enable everyone in this country to dream big through education?
1: Well, I think uh, first of all, the, the role in education on, on the federal level is pretty limited. It's, it's really uh, helping, uh, it's 5% of the funding. So helping poor kids go to college, helping help, helping people that have disabilities, that sort of thing. The more you keep it local, I think um, the better education is. For example, let's say the U.S. senator does something that you hate and you think it's bad educational policy. Good luck trying to get rid of a U.S. senator. You need to you need to spend about 40 or 50 million bucks. On the other hand, let's say that your school board representative does something that that you think is inconsistent with the the welfare of your child. You can replace them. You you can doesn't take that much money. You can run against them. You can get other people. With respect to DeSantis, the part I do like is he's a champion of um, school choice. And I'm not for private schools or public schools. I'm for good schools. And so he allows you to um, choose any school w- within the public arena, use money to, to go to private schools with vouchers. I think that's good. The perception that's been in the media, and I don't know that it's necessarily accurate, but they've accused him of... Um, trying to manipulate the curriculum for K through three. So they call it the don't say gay bill and, and trying to articulate a, a certain ideology through children. But I, I think a lot of that is hyperbole. Um, I I've never seen any language in there that says that. And so there's a lot of controversy that, that you hear about him, but I, I don't, I don't take everything as the gospel.
0: Are you a fan or not, of Desantis? I assume you know him pretty well.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll, well, since I'm championing authenticity, I uh, I'm a fan on ninety five percent of things. I think there's some things he's done that I I don't necessarily agree with. Like, I don't think that um, that there should be penalties against people for wearing a mask during they're in COVID, or that that you should cut funding to a, a local school board agency because they don't require that because they require mask or that sort of thing. I, I think he went a little off the deep end on some of the COVID related stuff. I think he started off super strong. We kept Florida a lot more open than, than California was, but as we got closer to the, the Republican presidential primary, I think some of the decisions Appear a bit too ideological for my taste. And so I, it, and who knows? I don't say that I'm 100% right on everything either, but I'd say 95% of the stuff I agree with them, 5% I don't.
0: What about his stuff on migrants? He's been in the news recently, flying migrants to Illinois and, De- and, and Delaware. People on the left are very angry about that. Leaving aside the scientists, I don't want to keep on raking you over those coals. But um what do you think about the issue? We we began this show talking about dreaming as a as an immigrant, wanting to come to this country from El Salvador or Honduras or or, 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 or a number of other Central American countries. What what do you think American policy should be for wannabe dreamers, people who want to realize the American dream and work hard like a, a Michael Salman who came here and now is a, a very successful app entrepreneur.
1: Well, I I think there should be immigration. I think it should be legal. I I think that if someone has come here illegally, and you're going to somehow make them legal, I I don't think you should be able to vote right away. I think there should be certain steps you you've, you've, you've got to do to to earn your your citizen status. But you know, one thing that's very moving to me is is uh I'll I'll be at a 7 Eleven at six in the morning on the way to work and having a cup of coffee and I'll I'll see a pickup truck and there's like you know eight Mexican guys in the truck and they're in there getting coffee with me and the, the work ethic is so good. I mean, my God. I mean to work on a roof in Florida in August or to put up drywall, I mean, I I like the ambition and I would like for those folks who are who are contributing to society to, to do it in a legal way. And, and I really don't like the um, hurling stones at, at anybody, you know, with, with, with that said, you, you can't have un unmitigated uh, illegal immigration. There's, there's certainly a, uh, a compromise there, but I'm not into bashing the uh, immigrants. I think that there's um, there's a lot of good that, that, that everybody does. People are born here and people who aren't
0: you not into bashing immigrants. What about Bears? Explain the title, Chase the Bears. Uh, what, what, you know, when I first saw that, I thought you were referring to a sports team, maybe the Chicago Bears or something, but it's, <laughs> it's the real Bears, right, Rick?
1: That's right. 1985 Bears. Nobody could chase them when they won the Super Bowl there. The way that that title came about, I was halfway through writing my book and it was Sunday morning and I'm drinking coffee and reading the newspaper. And I look outside my window and there is a family of bears a big mama bear and three little cubs and we live a mile or two away from the woods and so my wife lori and i were just shocked and we stood up and without saying anything we just raced went outside to chase the bears because we wanted to continue this amazing experience and see these little cubs we never caught them uh black bears run 35 miles an hour an Olympic sprinter 28. And I was pretty sure if the mama bear had turned around that she could have gotten one of us. At least I think I could outrun Lori, but I said to Lori afterwards, I said, you know, is this kind of a metaphor, Lori, because most people in life under that circumstance are content to stay inside, play it safe, look out their window as life passes them by. And eventually the clock runs out. Some people are willing to take a chance and chase their dreams and chase the bears. And Lori said, my God, Rick, that's the name of your book, Chase the Bears. And so that's that's how we got it.
0: Are there particular cultural figures you admire in terms of their ability to chase the bears? We, uh, not the bears, the, ba- the bears, uh, Rick. Um, we did a show a couple of weeks ago where Lynn Melnick has a book about her trauma of drug addiction and sexual violence, but also how she relied on. Dolly Parton to get out of it. all. Well, I know you're also a big fan of Dolly Parton. What is it about Dolly that helps you or has helped you to chase the bears?
1: I love Dolly. And and I, I would say Dolly Parton and uh, Jim Carrey are, are my two favorite celebrities. The thing I loved about Dolly is she she announces when she graduates high school to her friends that she's going to go to Nashville and and be a star. And they laughed at her. And then she goes to Nashville. She has 21 Number one country uh, hits on the charts, and it was her intuition, this the strength of her. So, for example, she one of those hits was called "I Will Always Love You," and it hit number one in the country charts. And Elvis liked it so much, he said, "You know, I'm going to record this song and, and and the pop charts." And Dolly was so happy. And the night before the big recording took place, Elvis's manager, who's kind of a jerk, Con- Colonel Tom Parker, said, "Oh, by the way, you're ne- you're going to need to sign over." half of your royalties to Elvis. And she's like, what are you talking about? I mean, I wrote this song. It's already hit number one on the charts. And he goes, sorry, that's the way it is. And she said, sorry for you, buddy. I, I, I'm not doing it. And then many, many years later, um, Kevin Costner calls her and says, you know, I'm doing this movie, the bodyguard we've cast Whitney Houston. I'd love it to get your permission to allow Whitney to sing the song and you can keep a hundred percent of the royalties. And this time her intuition said, Yes. Whitney recorded it, become the number one selling song of all time by a female artist. And uh, Dolly joked, you know, when I recorded that song, I put money in the bank. When, when Whitney recorded it, I, I bought the bank. And it, it was just a lady who was willing to use her gifts of singing and songwriting And I think she's super authentic, not notwithstanding her flashy look and and just a great role model. I think she's intuitive and and persistent and 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 just nice to people
0: than um, than Whitney Houston. Where are the Dolly Partons today? I mean, she's still around, but she's very old. Um, Why? Why are there no Dolly Partons? Uh, Lynn Melnick uh, is politically far to your left. How are we going to find people like Dolly who can reunite us, Rick?
1: Well, there's only going to be one Dolly. She's she's unique. I I think there's people that uh, are very powerful that that speak with strong voices. If I was going to look outside the political world, probably the person that I respect the most is uh, Brene Brown. Um, and and Brene Brown, as as you know, she was just a little known Texas a uh, professor and she gave this Ted talk called the power of vulnerability that was seen by 57 million people. And her thesis was we connect with people by being vulnerable, authentic and real. And rather than just say that she gives an example on her Ted talk of when she had a, a nervous breakdown and needed counseling. And I think people connected with that. I, I think our culture at least at least mine and others have been you know let's pre- let's present this perfect image to the outside world and fake it till you make it never let them see you sweat and put your best foot forward and Brene Brown comes along and says no the truth is exactly the opposite the truth is you connect with people by being vulnerable and authentic and real and she goes on to write six number one bestsellers and I think she stumbled on to a universal truth and she conveys her message uh, in an authentic way. She's funny as hell and really doesn't pick political fights. I, I think that's someone I, I super admire.
0: I heard there was a rumor, Rick, that you you watched that, what, 55 million times? I,
1: I watched it over and over. I, I was just blown away, and I'm, I'm sitting there with my wife, and I said, this time I'm going to count how many times she uses self-deprecating humor. She used it 22 times now i gave a speech on self-deprecating humor where i'm trying to use it over and over and i only did it 13 times so she did it a hell of a lot better than i did and and very very natural i think she's she's sort of a a combination of a, a dave chappelle and and a wise person i don't i don't know how you you get that all in one person but i i think her humor really it's it's sort of like when you want to give your dog a, a vitamin and you wrap it in ground beef, I think the ground beef is the humor and the vitamin is the is the lessons on vulnerability.
0: You mentioned Jim Carrey also inspiring you, along with Dolly Parton. I know you're also a big admirer of uh, Steve Harvey and a, another Steve, a very famous Steve from my side of the country, Steve Jobs. Um, are these your inspirations, your friends, when things don't go well, Rick, when your dreams get popped or squashed or undermined in some way?
1: I, I love all the people you just named. And one of the reasons I love them is they become super so successful. They tell how they did it. And they sort of throw the rope ladder of success down to help other people. And so Steve Harvey is a guy who is uh, worth $200 million has six Emmys, uh, several number one bestsellers, a $100 million movie. But when you see him give a speech to college students, he said, look, you know, I've had setbacks. I was homeless for three years. I had two failed marriages. I lost everything I own. Uh, I, I own twice. Uh, but you can still fail and win anyway. And this is how I did it, using my gifts. And I, I love that. I thought Steve Jobs' speech at Stanford, my God, that that made." One of the best speeches of all time, if not the best speech. And he was vulnerable and just, you know, I hear he's going to die soon. And he kind of lays out uh, how he followed his intuition and did it in a way that that even regular people could connect with, like me.
0: Any regrets, Rick? Chase the Bears is, I hope, not your final book or your final statement in terms of yourself and your life and your ability to dream. But uh, are there regrets if you were living again? Any major decisions you would do differently? Would you still go into politics?
1: Um. Yeah, I would. Uh, I would. I wasted. It feels like I wasted like four years of my life taking organic chemistry and, and physics and all these hard pre-med classes when I wasn't going to go that route. Yeah, but you had uh, to do that to understand yeah. that
0: you weren't going to become a doctor.
1: Yeah, I uh, I it took me a while to get the marriage thing right. I'm on my third marriage, but I'm incredible. What happened on, with the first marriage? On the first two, great people, but then they went for a long time. Uh, first wife, I was married to for eleven years, and uh, has a lot of positive qualities. But we we weren't the the perfect fit. Uh, I think she liked a more nine to five person, and I'm gone all the time. And part my fault. The uh, the second wife also had a lot of good qualities, a mother of three of my children. But we sort of grew apart. And this wife that I have, Lori, is everything is easy you know and and one thing that i've learned and if i could tell my younger self you always hear about marriage is hard and you know relationships are hard it shouldn't be that damn hard it, if you're with the right person it should be like paddling downstream you may hit a rapid once in a while but it's easy living with her funny bright articulate it's such positive energy i wish i would have found her 30 years ago
0: and what about your kids? Have they read Chase the Bears? What do they think?
1: Well, that's funny. Uh, my kids are one of the reasons I uh, I wrote this book because it changed my life at 14. And I gave it to my daughter when she turned 14. She's an ambitious girl and said, here, read Think and Grow Rich. It may change your life. And she got back to me a couple weeks later and says, I'm not digging it, Dad. I don't. Relate to it. It's a bunch of old white rich guys from the 1800s trying to get richer. There's no girl power. I don't want to get rich. I want to do good things and achieve other goals, and I can't relate to it. And so I took those same principles in thinking girl rich, and I added a lot of girl power stories and and successful women entrepreneurs and and athletes and people in entertainment. And I tried to put a lot of humor to make it easy. And I sent her a couple chapters and she said, I love it, dad. I mean, I'm not just saying that because you're my dad. I love it. And so it kind of inspired me to, to write a book that we can all connect with. And if if you're a regular person uh, and you have have to choose between relating to Andrew Carnegie or or Rick Keller, I think a lot of people would relate to to Rick Keller. And I still think Thinking Girl Rich is is probably the, the greatest self help book of all time. But this is a book that has more humor, that's more relatable, more modern. And I,
0: I, think there's a place for it. Well, there's only a place for chase the bears. Little things to achieve big dreams by Rick Keller has done many things, including, uh, being in Congress for 10 years, successful lawyer, successful dreamer. Congratulations, Rick on the new book and on the three marriages, you like marriage so much. You did it three <laughs> times. Um, what else would you suggest people read in addition to chase the bears? What, well, you, you mentioned the Carnegie book what and, and Dolly Parton, although I'm not sure if she read, wrote any books. Uh, any other books that you really like?
1: The best book I've read in the last three years is uh, a book called From Strength to Strength uh, by Arthur Brooks, who is a, uh, a professor at Harvard. And essentially what he says is that you have two curves in your life. The first curve is you're trying to get the trophies. You know, it's the child star and the NFL guy. The people in the second part of their life who are still trying to be the get the trophies and trying to be the child star are the most miserable, and the people that are happy in it, that are happiest are those who switch to the second part of life, saying, "How can I lift up others? How can I be a, a mentor? How can I share my wisdom?" And I just so connected with it because I my happiness has tracked his curve. Uh, almost with, with perfect synchronicity there. And so it's it's sort of like, I think he stumbled onto an e equals MC squared uh, formula here. And I, I loved it. It hit number one on the New York Times uh, bestseller list. So I guess a lot of other people liked it too. And what really surprised me, I heard him on Oprah and I was mind blowing and I sent him a note just said how, what a big fan I was. And I essentially said what I just said to you. And he uh, read my book from cover to cover and, and gave a blurb. And here I am, an unknown first-time author, and he, w- he was at the time he gave the blurb, the, the n- number one on the New York Times bestselling list. So he's a, he's a sweet guy too, but the, but the message is so powerful.